Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Thank you, guys. Good morning, church. Good morning. Hey, uh, I don't know if this is a good thing or if this is something to start worrying about. For the second week in a row, I'm going to start with a children's book this morning. And I don't know if that's creativity at work or if it is just the absolute cap of my intelligence in this season of life. You be the, the judge of that at this point. Last week we looked at the children's book, uh, we're going on a bear hunt. And we were looking at how Peter looks at the church in his day and he says, there are so many troubles that you have to face and you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you have to go through it. And he began to show them how we face the troubles that are in front of us and go through them in Christ. Today I want to share with you the book, The Couch Potato. And you may not be as familiar with this book, but I picked it up at the book fair last year. And with my two younger daughters, we love reading this book. It's become a quick favorite of mine. And it's about the couch potato, who's a literal potato who lives his life out on a couch. And he has surrounded himself in his favorite seat with all of his favorite things so that he can live his best life on his couch and not have to go anywhere or do anything or interact with anyone he has all things that he needs by a push of a button. He has screens galore so that he can take in all of the content that he would ever want to take in, the movies and the technology, and he can even stay connected to his friends via the screen. And so why would he ever need to leave the comforts of his couch until one day there's a problem, the power goes out in his home? Yes, and that's the one thing that we all dread, right? And now the problem of the book becomes the question of the book, can Couch Potato possibly find as much joy and satisfaction in life outside in the fresh air, in the sunshine, with real contact with other french fries and potatoes, not just through the screen, but can there really be a life that compares away from the couch out in the real world? And that's what we find out in this book. I give it five stars. We're not selling it in the lobby, but you can find it on, on Amazon. Now, the reason I wanted to show this book to you, uh, it, there is a reason. It's not random. It's because when I looked at the text that we're going to focus on today, the image that kept popping into my mind was that of couch potato Christians. You with me? Couch potato Christians and the calling in our life that we find in the Word of God to fight the couch and to get off of, of the couch. And this morning, I, I kind of want to start with this question, and I want you to think through this. Do you believe it's possible, that's where we start, do you believe it's possible for a person to attend church services, to be surrounded by other Christians, to have quiet times, times of devotion, even to serve and to volunteer in the church and still at the very same time be a couch potato Christian? Some of you are like, yes I do. And I do too. I think that's a possibility that we can fall into. We can surround ourselves with all kinds of Christian activity. And yet I'm talking about something deeper when I use the term couch potato Christian. It's not just about do I have activity or not. But there's something a little deeper that I want to tap into this morning. And Frederick Buechner, a, a theologian and philosopher who recently passed away, he used a different term than couch potato Christian. He called it spiritual sloth. And I want you to hear what he said about this. He said, sloth is not to be confused with laziness, 
A slothful person may be a very busy person. This is a person who goes through the motions, who flies an automatic pilot like someone with a bad head cold. Get that in your, in your brain. Someone with a bad head cold, they have mostly lost their sense of taste and smell. People come and go, but through glazed eyes, they're hardly even noticed. Things just run their course. It's just getting through life. I don't know if that's recognizable to you. Tony Reinke added this. He said the most common species of slothfulness is, listen, lazy busy. Uh, A full schedule endured in a spiritual haze. Begrudging interruptions. And the people said amen. Resenting needy people. Driven by a craving for the next comfort. It's an epidemic in our day. And I like this term that he used, lazy busy, because I think that's something that we can get our minds wrapped around. We can understand the idea of lazy busy because we've seen it or we have been it. And the couch potato Christian is a person who is caught in it like a fly in flypaper, who is caught in a spiritual lazy busyness. And that's what I want to look at this morning is what do we do if we find ourselves to be caught in spiritual sloth or in in couch potato Christianity? What do we do when we see that that's where we are in our life? So grab your Bible or your journaling Bible, turn to to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off last week. 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to remind you the context where we started last week is Peter, the apostle, is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire During a time, during an era where the empire seemed to be caving in on itself, it was in self-destruct mode because there were deep political issues and an economic crisis. There was social upheaval. There were racial tensions. People were divided and turning against each other. There was a deep spiritual attack happening against the church and the church was being persecuted on all sides and it wasn't just being dismissed or pushed to the margins of society. Their lives were being threatened. And at this time, Peter begins to write to them and we looked at last week how Peter says to them in verse 3 that you Christians have been given everything that you will need to look at what's in front of you and to go through it. Here's verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything, somebody say everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's a powerful statement. And the benefit of of a statement like that is that it should begin to do a work in our life in in easing or, or melting away our feelings of inadequacy that we'll never make it through this life. Or it began, should begin to be like a, a solving balm over the fears of our life that we're on our own and all of the troubles that come that we're just going to have to buck up and face them in our strength. Because we're told here that we've been given everything that we need to face life as it is. And as we begin to believe that, that it is God who is his eye upon us and that he is working for us, for our good. And he is working in us and through us, then we begin to experience the benefit of this statement that Everything that we need for life has been given to us already in Christ. The danger of this statement, though, is that it might lull us into passivity. Do you see what I mean here? We might hear that everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us. Everything that we'll ever need has already been done in us. And we may at that point think, well, then there's nothing for me to do. I'm just, I'm just to float here in the air of Christianity. I'm just to, to cruise along in the Christian culture that surrounds me. Or in other words, I'm just kind of coasting through life. And the problem with spiritually coasting is that coasting is nothing more than stopping slowly, right? 
And that's the thing that begins to happen in our souls if we're lulled into passivity. We stop growing, we stop maturing, we stop experiencing the joy and the delight of belonging to God. And we stop experiencing the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives if we're lulled into a couch potato Christianity. So could it be this morning is the question that that is an experience that you and I have and that we are in right now. Could it be this morning that you are in a season of your life in Christ where you have just kind of sat down on the couch and you are just letting life come at you as it will. And you may still be, you're here, right? You may still be in life group. You may still volunteer in some way. You may still have Christian activities around you. But something in your soul just isn't beating. It isn't thriving with this new life that we read about last week. Like that experience that we read last week, you go, a new mind? I still see the world and I still reason through things in the way I, I always did. I don't feel like I share in the mind of Christ. A new power? I don't feel all that powerful. I mean, I, I get it. You say it's there. and That's a great thing that pastors say and that Christians say. But I just I feel, feel so weak. And remember last week in verse 4, it talked about having a new nature being partakers in a divine nature. And maybe you're going, I'm, I'm in Christ. And I hear you say that I share in that divine nature, but it just doesn't, I can't relate to the experience of it. I don't feel like I have a new nature. If that is the way that you feel, it is possible that we have become a couch potato Christian. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you that there is a right way and a wrong way to fight the couch. And the wrong way, please understand this, the wrong way to fight the couch is to, in your own strength, devise a plan to just fill your life up with all of the Christian activity that you can. More spiritual disciplines, more Christian busyness, and I'll work my way out of this, this sluggish spiritual state that I find myself in. That would be the wrong way to fight the couch because you would, again, reinforce the forgetfulness that you've been given everything that you need for life in Christ already. It's not something that you can earn. It's not something you can achieve. It's not something that you can purchase on Amazon. All you can do is receive the same way you receive salvation is receive that new nature. But it's something that you have to engage. And what I think that we'll find in the text today is that there is a way to tap into what God has placed in you. There's a way to engage all that has been placed in your life for life and godliness. So how do we do it? How do we engage the new life, the new mind, the new power, the new nature? How do we engage these things in a way in which we begin to, to grow? The first thing I'll tell you, there's two things I'll tell you, but the first thing I'll say is we've got to get off the couch by knowing God. S sounds too simple. We have to get off the couch by knowing God. Look at verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We know that much. Look at the next statement. How does it come? It comes through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through truly knowing him. Not knowing about him, but truly knowing him is the way that we really experience the fruit and the effect of all of the things that he's placed in your life for life and godliness. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It is an absolute phenomenal book that everyone should read. I'd recommend it to everyone. It's a big book, but it is a, a seminal book for your thinking about your relationship with the Lord. And I want, to, I want you to hear just a little bit of wisdom from J.I. Packer. He asked the question, 
what were we made for? And he answered, to know God. And he asked, well, what aim should we set ourselves in life? It's to know God. That's the aim. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives us? It is the personal knowledge of God. And J.I. Packer isn't making this stuff up. He's stealing his answers from Jesus. <laughs> in, in the high priestly prayer in John, in John 17, Jesus says this, and he's praying, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've set. This is eternal life that you would really and truly know God. So Packer continues. He says, well, what's the best thing in life? What's the thing that brings more joy, more delight, and more contentment than anything else in this life he's overwhelmingly convinced it is simply really deeply personally knowing God and God has said this in Jeremiah 9 thus says the Lord let not a wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might let not a rich man boast of his riches but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, that he understands and knows that personally, that I exercise justice and righteousness on earth. I delight in these things, says the Lord. So Packer continues, what of all the states God ever sees in a person gives him the most pleasure? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered, God, what do I need to do? How do I please you? God, God, how do you feel about me? Packer says it is nothing more than the knowledge of God, having a personal knowing, a truly knowing God. God says this in Hosea, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, listen, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or in other words, God says, my greatest delight is when you know me personally, not when you do things for me or when you try to prove yourself to me or that you're holy or that you're strong or that you're smart or that you're a, a faithful follower. All I really want is that you would know me and know me personally. That's what brings God delight. So Packer concludes, he says, once you've become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, then most of life's problems begin to fall in place of their own accord. Not that when you know God, you have no more problems, because remember Jesus said, in this world you have many what? Troubles. Yeah. And then he said, take courage, I've overcome the world. So you will have many troubles even though you know Christ, but you will have courage because in Christ you know all the promises of God are yours. And so all of the problems begin to sort themselves out in the right way in your life. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. If you want to experience that abundant life that Jesus promised to give, and that is yours if you are in Christ. If you want to grow, you can't grow by trying to grow. You grow by knowing God. You grow by leaning in deeply into a real deepening and personal relationship with God. And I add the phrase real deepening and personal because I have realized that there are so many counterfeit ways of knowing God that we have come to rest in. Counterfeit ways of knowing God that aren't true knowledge like we see in verse 3. They're just counterfeits. They stop short of true knowledge. And I was talking to my friend Barbara this week about this. And she had just heard a sermon where a pastor was talking about counterfeit ways of knowing God where we stop short. And so we began making a list and talking about these counterfeit ways of knowing God. And I want to show you at least three that we all agree on, three ways that we stop short of true knowledge. We think we know God, but it's counterfeit. The first counterfeit is hearsay. It's knowing God by, by hearsay, or in other words, 
you just go, well, I heard a preacher say this about God, and so that's how God is. Or you think, well, I read in a book one time that God is like this, and that's how God is. And it may be true, but you haven't personally experienced this. It's just something you read somewhere that someone else knew. It's secondhand knowledge. In other words, it's like when you say, my mom always said this was true about God. That's why I believe it, because my mom always said it. And I'm glad your mom said it, but it's different than having a, a firsthand, personal, true knowledge of God. It's, it's secondhand knowledge. And if you and I are to, if we're to feel satisfied in secondhand knowledge, that, that Pastor Barbara listened to said, it's the death of truly knowing God, because you'll stop short. If you just rely on and rest in secondhand knowledge or hearsay, then you'll never deeply know God because you haven't personally come close to Him to experience it. So it's a counterfeit way if you're always resting in someone else's words. A second counterfeit is textualism. It's textualism. And here's what I mean by this it's like I have a Bible. You have your Bible with you. I have a Bible and I'm a Christian, or I, at least I'm a part of a church. I have a Bible and I'm a part of a church. And so Everything that the Bible says, everything that's in this book, I agree with. Blank check. I'm not saying I've read it. I'm not saying I understand it or even know what's in it. I'm just saying if it's here, whatever's in here, I, I agree with it. I don't know if, if you've done that or if you've seen that. Do you remember Paul in Ephesians 3 talking about the breadth and the depth and the height of, of, of the love of God? He, he said, I pray that you would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's glory to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Do you hear that? To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. In other words, to have a personal relationship with Jesus, to know him in a personal way that surpasses just a general knowledge. And he says, I, will, I pray that you'd have that so that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Textualism is mistaking an allegiance to the text for possession of the person the text is about. Does that make sense? It's mistaking an allegiance to a book, a blank check. I agree with whatever's in here. I don't know what it is, but I, I agree with it. To knowing the person who the book is about. That, that's textualism. And if we're satisfied in that, then we will stop short of fully knowing God, truly knowing him. Second counterfeit. A third counterfeit. I'm going to call it uh, back of the closet truth. And what I mean is that there are some things that are just, we've accepted them as true, maybe because they're so obviously true or because we just have at some point settled up, I agree, I believe this thing. And we took this truth and we placed it on the top shelf in the back of the closet where it just remains back there. And we're never really looking at it or thinking about it or living our lives in light of this truth because it's sitting in the back of the closet. I'll give you an example. Uh, the omnipresence of God, big word, right? The omnipresence of God, meaning that he is not confined, he is not limited to any space, geography, or time. That God, because he is infinite, because he is God, can be with all people at all times in all, in all places. Meaning that there's no place in your life that you are going to go or you might need to go that God is not with you, he is not there. Meaning that there is no way for you to go into a room and lock a door which God cannot enter, Right? Does everyone agree with the omnipresence of God? At least mostly, in theory, do you agree with the omnipresence of God? It's an example, I think, of one of those things that we might often believe is true, but then put at the back of the closet and not really think about it. 
Because if we really thought about the omnipresence of God and had it in front of us, then it might change the way that we look at certain situations in life. It might change the way we look at temptation to sin if we knew that God is with us in that moment, not only with us and knowing us and knowing what we're doing, but also empowering us to not fall to temptation to sin. It's like if you're a kid and you know your parents are watching and if you know that they are there, you're less likely to break the rules than if you think that they're in the other room, right? If you know that they're right there with you, it would change the way we face certain obstacles and trouble in life. When we see things that feel unsurmountable and we go, oh my God, goodness I can never I can't I don't know how to and we feel weak and we feel like there's no way but if we knew that God is with us he's omnipresent that there is no place that he can't go there's no place where his power can't mark and change and transform our lives in a situation it might change our outlook on that thing but if we take a truth like that and we place it at the back of the closet and we're satisfied just to settle up some theological principles in our life and put them at the back of the closet and not live in light of them, then they are just these ideas and they're not a true knowledge in which we live in light of who God is and what he's doing in our life. We'll stop short. And that's why that too is a a counterfeit way of knowing God. And the reason I tell you these things is because there are ways that I have seen us, I have seen myself, I have seen you stop short of this true knowledge of God because we have stopped short with these ideas that really are not true knowledge and because they're not true knowledge they don't have a power to unleash this new mind and this new nature in us and to transform us in the midst of a situation the key to really experiencing the power of God at work in your life and through your life is really truly knowing God in a personal and deepening way and if you stop short of that then you won't experience the power of God at work in your life you won't you'll be a bystander to that as it happens in other people's lives now I I want you to hear this verse 3 has told us that God has placed everything in your life that it's all there in fact roll back to verse 1 verse 1 says that you couldn't even believe you wouldn't even have faith if he hadn't given it to you the ability to have faith because it says we've received faith by the grace of God in verse one didn't it say that yeah and then you get to verse three and now he's given you everything that you would ever need for life and godliness so he has done all the work and yet I want you to hear what Peter says in verse five now for this reason he's done all the work but for this reason also you applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence supply knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly love and in your brotherly love your brotherly kindness love if we are really depending upon what God has placed inside of us in Christ there will be an outworking of that a an external manifestation of that that is changing and growing in our lives and it will be seen in our lives in some very practical ways and so while I tell you that that to to experience the depth of a growing relationship with Christ you got to get off the couch and know God the second thing I want to tell you is we get off the couch by growing in godliness by knowing God but also growing in godliness and I, I want you to picture this in this way I don't know if you have motion sensors on any of the lights in your home or outside of your house Think about motion sensors being on in a room 
And you know the power is run to the house, it's run to the room, the power is on, the switch is flipped, but it's not until you make a movement, it's not until it detects motion that we begin to experience the effects of that light on. Does that make sense? This is what Peter's saying. He's not after going on and on about God has done everything you have received and he has done everything and given you everything. He's not turning his back on what he's just said and saying, yeah, but now you've got to go earn it and you've got to go do all this work to become a better Christian. No, he's saying all of this has been placed within you, but it's waiting to be unleashed in your life for some motion. The lights will come on when you begin to move in it and begin to live in it. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this to the Philippians. Do you remember this? In in Philippians 2, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go work out your salvation with fear and trembling. His next line, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look at those two lines. You go and work out your salvation. It is God who is at work. You go work out your salvation. It is God who is at work. How can both of those things be true at the same time in your life. You go work out your salvation. It's God who's at work. What does this mean? Well, the Greek word for, uh, he uses here for work out means to continually work to bring something to realization. To continually work to bring fruition. Uh, in, in other words, it's this life in Christ. It is this salvation that is knowing God in Christ. It's like a muscle that needs to be exercised. Work out isn't like there isn't an answer, there isn't a solution, so you need to sharpen your pencil and start doing the math problem and see if you can find salvation. It's a muscle that you've been given that needs exercise so that you can experience the effects of all of the power that has been given there. Salvation is this thing that's ready to explode in your life, but you have to exercise it if you want to see the effects of it in and through your life. Peter and and Paul are both saying something here. They're both saying, I want you to look at all of the things that God has promised, that he has done in your life, all of the things that he has done for you, and then I want you to see how to work out what he has worked in you. Does that make sense? I want you to see what God has placed in you, and then I want you to begin to work out what he has worked in you. Because if we are going to really depend on and tap into and engage all that he has placed in us, Do you remember the beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, when Paul's praying, he says, I just pray that the eyes of your heart would be open, that you would know all of the things that God has placed in your life, because he knows that sometimes our eyes are closed to all of the riches and all of the inheritance of the saints and all the blessings and all the power in our life. So Peter and Paul are saying, it's there, but you have to work out what God has worked in. And we'll see that in practical ways when we do that. It's as if this, the virtues that are in Christ are in us. If Galatians 2.20 is right, if it's true that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, then the virtues that mark the life of Christ are in my life and somewhat laying dormant until I get off the couch and I begin to exercise those things by faith. And Peter lists those exercises here in these verses and I don't know if you do much gym work but it's like circuit training it's like this leads to this leads to this leads to this and this flows after this and then you do this one after that and that's how Peter lines these things up and when you get to the end you're not suddenly like Arnold Schwarzenegger you're not pumped up you go back to the beginning and you do your second set and you keep 
growing and you keep experiencing a deepening and you begin to experience more and more of of the power of God at work in you because as you practice these things, you're inviting the power of God to take over in all the areas of your life. And so let me show you these, these exercises that by faith you've received all of this, but now you've got to exercise it. He starts with the faith that you've received. How do you activate it? You do so by trusting God. You exercise faith by trusting what God has to say, by trusting that his promises are sure, by trusting that he is with you and you're not alone. You exercise faith by trusting God, not trusting yourself, what you see or think or reason to be true, not trusting some other person's philosophy, 10 tips to be a better whatever in life. You exercise faith by trusting God, not by forgetting about God when you face an obstacle and you completely forget that God is with you, but by trusting God, by leaning into his presence and leaning into his word and trusting that he is with you, he is for you, and he's working in and through your life. When you start that exercise of trusting God, it moves to a next workout. That next exercise is moral excellence. If you're trusting God, that means he begins to change you from the inside out. When you come up against things in life, he begins producing a new way of responding and behaving. If you are just trying to fit into a Christian culture, then you change from the outside in, right? In your strength, you change your behavior so you fit in. But if you're trusting God because you're leaning into God, you know God, you have a true knowledge of God, he begins working on the inside, which begins working on the the outside. That trusting leads to a moral excellence, which leads to a, a knowledge, a deepening growth in the knowledge of God because now he's doing something in you that is being confirmed outside of you. And you go, oh, God, I see what you're doing now and you're growing in a knowledge of God, which leads to, Peter says, self-control. Or in other words, the ability to abstain from sinful desires. And why? Well, because back in 4, we learned last week in verse 4, because he's given us an appetite for something better. He's given us an appetite for food that really and truly satisfies us. And in doing so, he's helped us to escape the junk food of our lives. And so now we have a greater sense of self-control because we know that junk isn't good for us, but instead there's something better offered to us and we trust God for that. You do this, it leads to perseverance, which means to stay faithful in the long haul, not just short term, but I'm in this for the long game. It's a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson would say. That leads to, listen to this, to godliness. And I want you to hear the definition of the Greek word used here for godliness. It means to worship well. The word godliness here doesn't mean to do everything right. It doesn't mean to be perfect. It doesn't mean to you know, be clean and healthy in mind and body. Those are all great things. But it means to worship well, which sounds a lot like what we say as a church is one of our core values, that, that worship is a lifestyle. It's not a, an hour of devotion. It's not a prayer time. It's not a song time. It's not a reading time. But it's a lifetime. Where God is at the center and everything that we are and everything that we do is based upon our relationship of having God at the center of our lives. So he overwhelmingly guides us through our life and we live in response to him. That means worship is a lifestyle. This says as we're practicing or exercising these virtues, it leads to us worshiping well or living godly lives. That upward relationship of worshiping well has an outward or horizontal uh, outcome. It says it leads to brotherly kindness. It's the way we begin to treat people. Not because I've decided in my mind that I'm going to treat people kindly, 
But because I'm trusting in God and that is changing the way I behave and that is helping me to have a deeper understanding of God and it's keeping me from lashing out and reacting and acting like a fool to people all the time and I'm doing so in a long-standing way and I'm worshiping well, it begins to change the way I treat people. And it's distinct, it's unique, it's very different from the way people treat each other in the world. And why is that? Well, it's because the last virtue, because of love. And there's a difference in the brotherly kindness and the love. Brotherly kindness is the Greek word phileo, which means I'm caring for you because I'm choosing to care for you and I like you and it's good that we're together and and I appreciate our situation being together. But the, the last word love is agape, which means it is a sacrificial love. It is a generous love that, that isn't earned. It isn't because I even like you. Maybe I don't like you, but I love you because I have been the recipient of such love. And so I will be the one who gives off such love in this world to people, even to people who might, might oppose me, even to people who don't care for me very much. These things are being produced in us as we exercise our faith. And when you get to the end of that, if you find like love isn't flowing through you, you don't have those warm feelings for your brother or sister in Christ, and you're not loving your enemy, well, you go back to the beginning and you start there again and you go, where I fall short, I trust God. And you ask him to begin to continue to work in you and to produce in you Christ-likeness, which is the goal. Love, I think, is the pinnacle. Love here is the, the last of the virtues because it is the very center of God's will for you. Love is the very center of God's will for you, that you would receive his love, that you would be transformed by his love, and that his love would flow from you to other people in this world so that they might experience his love as well. Do you see that? And when love fails, where do you go? Go back to your second set and you start at the beginning with trusting trusting God by faith. We can do this because there is a divine nature and a divine power at work in us. If you're not in Christ, you can't do this. Because you're relying only in your strength. And I'm not strong enough to do any of these things on my own. I'm not. I fail every time. But if you're in Christ, if you've received salvation by faith, by the grace of God, then all of these things are possible because you've been given a new nature and a new power at work, which leads to a transformation of your life, a metamorphosis of your life. It is because if you no no longer live, but Christ lives in you, that means the genetic structure of Jesus is already there. The genetic structure of Jesus is within you and you know that it's God's desire to make you to become more like Jesus. And so now all that you have to do is by faith exercise these things and allow the Holy Spirit to transform your life by them. And what Peter says is that there is no better way to know God, to truly know him, than to grow in godliness then to take these things that are in Christ and put them into action in your life. You do so and you will grow in in knowing God. And Peter says there's no greater way to experience the transformation and the power of God at work in your life. You want to experience the power of God, you've got to get off the couch and you've you've got to work out your salvation. You've got to exercise it. No greater way to do so than by following this list of circuit training these virtues. And he says one more thing. Peter says there's no greater way to be confident in who God is. If, if some days you find yourself shaking on that, if you're not sure, God, are you really there? God, are you really who you say you are? God, are you really sure that all those promises are true? There's no greater way to be confident in who God is and in who you are than to engage yourself in these virtues and becoming more like Jesus. Listen to verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... 
They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Listen to verse 9 now. For he who lacks these qualities, he says, is blind or short-sighted. Blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And we get the picture there of a person who is squinting or closing their eyes and they're not able to see at a distance. They can only see what's right in front of them. And I think that there are lots of seasons in our lives where we live our spiritual life like that, where we can only see what's right in front of us, but we can't see the greater glory that lies ahead. Do you know what I'm saying? There are a lot of us who can see what's happening right in front of us, but we can't see that the promises of God are sure for all of us who trust in the Lord. All we can see is right in front of us. We can't see that there's a greater purpose for us being here. We see the problems that we face, but we don't see the purpose and the problems that we face and that we're called to be into this broken world, not out, but called into this broken world to live on mission. We can't see that far. There are so many of us who are blind and short-sighted. We can see what's right in front of us, but what we can't see is what's on the other side of the obstacle. We have no vision of that. That's what happens when we're not exercising these things by faith. Now listen to verse 10. Therefore, because of this, brethren, you be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In other words, if you're not growing, you will start doubting. Do you believe me on that? If you're not growing, you will start doubting. Why? Because that's the work of our enemy. And if we sit down for a moment, if we are not diligent for a moment to be aware of who God is and what he intends to do and that there is an enemy who wants to undo any good thing that he's doing in my life, remember, to steal, to kill, and to to destroy, if I'm not diligent to practice these things, I will begin doubting. So keep circuit training your faith. Keep practicing these things so that it will be confirmed to your own soul. Not that you have a thing to prove to me or the person sitting near you or a thing to prove to God. Not a thing to prove to anyone. But exercise these things so that you will prove to your own soul that you have a right place with God in Christ that you're in right standing with God in Christ so that you will prove to yourself it is true. I have been given everything that I need to to face life as it is. I've been granted everything I need for life and godliness. I'll only know that if I'm actually practicing it and living it out. Practice it so that you will believe the promises of God are yours. For sure, it is settled. There is glory ahead. Remember Romans 8? The glory that lies ahead so overwhelmingly outweighs the troubles now. It is like, it's like the ocean to a thimbleful of trouble. An ocean of glory to a thimbleful of trouble and tribulation in this world. You'll know that as you know God by growing in godliness. Understand, friends, a profession of faith in Jesus identifies you with Christ. But a, a progression of faith in Jesus is what makes you confident what makes you confident of who you are in Christ and that he is certainly alive in you. He's alive in you. And I love this tension. Sometimes you hate tension. I love this tension. How do we grow? Do we grow by relying on God's resources? Or do we, do we grow by working really hard? 
it's yes. We rely on the resources that God has placed in us, but we, we're diligent to practice and exercise our faith with everything that is in us so that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do we grow? Do we grow by just relying on Jesus or do we grow by working hard? The answer is yes. We rely on Christ and the things that he has done in us and we engage them with our full being that we would experience the fullness of belonging to him, the fullness of his work in my life and the fullness of his work through my life. It's yes. We rely on everything that he has done and we work out what he has worked in. So here is the application. Are you actively currently fighting the tendency to be a couch potato Christian? I think if I'm not... I go back to the couch. Are you actively and presently fighting the tendency to be a couch potato Christian? Are you exercising by faith these virtues that have been placed in you because Christ is alive in you and the Holy Spirit as it worked dwelling within you, seeking to produce in your life the promises of God? Are you actively growing in faith? Are you actively uh, growing in self-control and in a capacity for patience? Are you growing in a warmth and a kindness for others? Are you growing in the capacity to love even those who would most oppose you? If you are not, then you may have been settling on a couch potato Christianity and you will not delight in knowing God from that seat. You have to get out. You have to get off the couch and you have to engage all of that that he has placed in your life in the way that he intends you to so that you can experience the delight of being his. And if you do, notice verse 8 says that your life will not be fruitless. And verse 10 says that you will walk with steady feet and your vision of the fullness of the future kingdom will drive you forward into the future. That's helpful that, that Peter doesn't say we'll be perfect at this. But he says, if we practice these things, they will be yours and they will be increasing. And that's what I want to pray for you this morning. Would you pray with me? God, it is very easy for us to look at salvation as a once and done thing. Because truly, truly, Jesus died once, hung on a cross once, and got out of a grave once. And that was enough to give us reconciliation with you, restoration of a relationship with you, to bring us near to you, to forgive our sins, to give us access to the kingdom of God now and, and for the forever future that is lying ahead where there is no more trouble, no more sickness, no more pain. It was a once and done thing, but it's easy for us to live off of that thing that happened to us and never delight in the full presence today of a new mind and a new power and a new nature at work in our lives. And Jesus, when you said, I've come that you might have life and life abundant, you meant that that begins now. It's not something that we just continue to walk in darkness and, and subsist until the day that you return. We long for your return. Jesus, please do come quickly. That is our prayer. But even in these days, you've given us a taste of heaven. You've given us a taste of, of what is to come. You've given us a nature and a power that is divine. And we sit here and we fear and we shake and we tremble at the troubles of this world. And we feel weak and we feel lost and we feel separated from you and from each other when we're not exercising our salvation. So help us to be a church of people who love to get fit spiritually souls that are alive in Christ, souls that know you deeply and truly 
and are marked by the, the work of God in us and through us that never grows old, never runs out, never gets boring. First John 3 said, we're not like you yet, Jesus. We one day will be when, when you return. But 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we know you face to face, you're transforming us day by day from one degree of glory to the next to be more and more like Jesus. I pray that we would be a church who lean in close to you. Lean in close to you, Jesus, and exercise all that you've put in us that we might delight in belonging to you. And would you use us not just to be happy Christians, but to be effective missionaries in this world that more people would come out of darkness into light and experience the delight of being yours. In Jesus' name, amen.